Hello, boys and girls. My name is Dr. John, and I'm so happy to welcome you to the Children's Story Hour. And beside me here, I have Auntie Sue. Hello, Auntie Sue. Hello, Dr. John. I'm so happy to be here today, and I'm looking forward to the stories. You know, you and I know the man who's reading the story. We're going to call him Uncle Alan, but his real name is Dr. Alan Lindsay. You know him quite well, don't you? Yes. I think we've known him for nearly 50 years, and he is a wonderful storyteller, and he is so well known. You know, he's going to read to us a selection of stories from a man called Arthur Maxwell. Auntie Sue, do you know the name of the book that he wrote? Oh, was it Bedtime Stories? It was. And, you know, he started to write these stories shortly after the Second World War, and that was over 70 years ago. And it was a bad time for little boys and girls because they were forgotten about in church. And so he said, I'm going to write some stories for boys and girls. And so he called them Uncle Arthur's Bedtime Stories. Did you ever read his stories, Auntie Sue, when you were a little girl? Yes, I did, and I enjoyed them very much. Uncle Arthur actually came and stayed at our house. And before we went to bed, I was only about 10 years old, he sat down and he told us Uncle Arthur's bedtime stories. Now, boys and girls, you might like to write to us and tell us your favorite story. Auntie Sue's got some details here for you. Boys and girls, if you would like to write to us and tell us your favourite story from this program, or perhaps you would like to tell us what books you like to read, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at Children's Story Hour, 3ABN Australia Radio, P.O. Box 752, Morissette 2264. And Morissette is spelt M-O-R-I-S-S-E-T, New South Wales, Australia. Or you could email us at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au, all lowercase. You can also check us out at the radio page on 3ABN Australia website. The website address is www. 3abnaustralia.org.au Well, that was quite an address. And boys and girls, I hope you wrote it all down. I think it might have been a bit difficult for some of you. You might like to ask mum and dad to listen carefully at the next episode. We'll repeat this address and they'll write it down for you. We would love to hear from you. But perhaps, Auntie Sue, could you just say a little prayer for us? Yes. Dear Lord, thank you for the children who are listening today. Thank you for the stories and the storytellers. And I pray that we will take them to our hearts. We ask you to bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Auntie Sue. Boys and girls, gather round and listen to the wonderful story read by Uncle Alan. Hi girls and boys, this is Uncle Alan with another story. Today it's called Paying the Price. 
Tom's great ambition at the moment was to play the piano at the next school concert. He had never played before in public and he thought it would be a wonderful thing to do. He pictured himself dressed up in his best suit with everybody looking at him and clapping wildly when he finished his piece. The whole picture thrilled him. What a night it would be. But in the meantime, there was this practising. He hated practising. If only he could play the piano without practising. Over and over, over and over, he played his special piece. Then he did some scales, up and down, up and down. Then he went back to his piece. There were rough places, many of them, that had to be improved. He played them over and over, over and over. At last, Tom looked at the clock. Just half past four. He'd only been practising for half an hour, and it seemed like hours and hours. Outside, it was such a lovely afternoon. Other boys were playing in the sunshine and having a great time. Oh, why did he have to do all this practising? Dum, 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 dummity, dum. Again and again, he worked over the difficult parts. Bang! Tom brought his two fists down on the keys and then slammed the lid of the piano. I won't practice any more, he cried, jumping up and rushing out of the room. Unfortunately, the big bang brought his mother running in from the kitchen to see what was the matter. The two met in the doorway. Hello, what's happened, cried mother. Not giving up so soon, are you? I'm not going to practice any more, said Tom. I'm going out to play. But you've only been at the piano half an hour. I know, said Tom, and it's too long. I've told you before, I hate practising. But the concert, said his mother. I thought you wanted to play that piece of yours. That's all right, said Tom. It's good enough. I don't need to practise it any more. But it isn't good enough unless it's perfect, said mother. It will take lots and lots of work yet. Tom looked longingly out of the window at the other boys. Oh, why did anybody invent pianos? I don't know, said Mother, but I do know that if my boy is going to play in public, I want him to play as well as it's possible for him to play. No one should do less than his best when people take the trouble to come and listen, and that means practice, endless practice. I suppose so, said Tom. Did you know, said his mother, that the greatest pianist in the world practices eight hours a day? Eight hours a day, exclaimed Tom. Oh, yes, said mother. And he once remarked to a friend, if I ceased to practice for just one day, I myself would be aware of it. And if I ceased to practice for two days, my best friends would be aware of it. But if I ceased to practice for three days, the whole world would know it. Tom sighed. I suppose there's no other way. I'm afraid not, said his mother. There is no other way to success. If you hope someday to become a great pianist, you will have to pay the price. You will have to work at it like that great pianist did, and as he does still. After all, the mark of a genius is not long hair or a strange name, but just care for detail, making every little part of what you do as perfect as it's possible for it to be. 
and that means doing it over and over again until it's right. I suppose so, said Tom. I once read of a famous author, said his mother, who wrote more than 200 stories before he sold the first one. A famous clown once said that he broke hundreds of plates before he perfected his plate-throwing act for his circus. So you see, Tom, the people who succeed have to practice and practice and practice. Sounds like try, try and try again, said Tom. That's it, said Mother. You have it. Tom turned his back on the window and returned to the piano. Soon a familiar sound was filling the house. Dum, 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 dummity, dum. Tom was paying the price. And when the concert came at last, and Tom played his piece without a single mistake, and the people clapped and cheered and called for him to play it all over again, nobody was happier than Tom. That is, nobody except his mother, who was so pleased and excited she could hardly sit still in her seat. Success, she said, as they drove home together that night, is always worth the struggle to achieve it. Boys and girls, I'm glad you're able to join me again and discover what's happening next with our new possum. Chapter 2 Libby's New Home. Barry and I set out on the 50 kilometre or 31 mile drive from the city of Townsville to our property on Harvey's Range with the new addition to our native wildlife family. I sat the box on my lap while Barry drove. I kept peeking inside the box. Libby was so small, I couldn't resist lightly stroking the soft grey fur on his back. He curled up into a tight ball, tucked his head in and wrapped his tail around his face. I detected a slight trembling in his body. Our little possum is frightened. I wish I could reassure him that everything is going to be fine. He's probably wishing he could be with his mother. You'd better telephone the Department of Parks and Wildlife when we get home to find out what we should feed him and how we should best care for him, suggested Barry. Good idea. When we arrived home, I rang the local office of the Department of Parks and Wildlife. I spoke to a person who was very knowledgeable about local wildlife. I was told that baby possums like soft fruit, tender shoots from gum trees and blossoms from several of the native trees and shrubs on our property. We had to teach the possum the things that his mother would have taught him, such as where all the good possum food trees are, which part of the plants to eat and where to find a safe place to sleep. As it grew dark, Libby began to wriggle and yawn and stretch his legs. He's waking up, I said. He's nocturnal. He sleeps during the day and feeds at night, Barry commented. Then it must be his breakfast time, I quipped. That's right. We have a nice ripe pawpaw, or papaya. 
that I was looking forward to to eating for breakfast tomorrow morning, but I suppose I could share it with him, offered Barry. I cut a small piece of pawpaw and offered it to Libby. He seemed to forget all his troubles as he sniffed the delicious golden yellow fruit. Cautiously, he licked it. He licked it again. Then he took a big mouthful. The fruit squished up the sides of his mouth and onto his whiskers. In no time at all, Libby devoured the whole chunk. He's looking a lot more contented with a tummy full of pawpaw, I noted. Why don't we show him the gum tree in the front yard? It has some tender new shoots on it, Barry suggested. I picked Libby up. He was so small that I could hold him comfortably in one hand. I covered him with my other hand so he couldn't run away. I walked outside to show him the gum tree. Barry picked a young shoot and offered it to him. Libby ate it without hesitation and looked for more. I then made my first big mistake. I stretched out my arms to the end of a branch and opened my hands so Libby could nibble on the shoots. Oh no, I squealed as Libby leaped out of my hand and scurried up the branch of the gum tree. Quick, catch him, I called to Barry. But the more we tried to catch Libby, the further up the gum tree he climbed. A ladder was no use because Libby continued to climb higher and higher out of reach. We waited and waited, but there he stayed. We tried to entice him down with another piece of pawpaw, but, true to name, Liberty had found his freedom and he was going to keep it. While God gave possums the instinct to climb trees where they would be safe, Libby was too young to be alone. He still needed his mother. Baby possums cling to their mother's back a bit like piggybacking. The mother possum's furry coat also helps to keep the baby possum warm. It was late at night by now, but how could we go to sleep knowing that a poor orphan possum was up a tree, in the dark, all alone, without its mother? In times of distress, it is good to remember God's wonderful promise in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, that tells us not to be anxious about anything. It says, Be careful for nothing, which means have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We can't do anything more tonight except pray for his safety. Jesus can look after Libby and return him to us if we are meant to care for him, reassured Barry. On our way to bed, we passed the empty cardboard box. I couldn't help feeling sad at the way the day had ended. But God, who hears and answers prayers, had a long and eventful future planned for Libby.
boys and girls, it's story time, and this is Uncle Gordon to bring you another story from the South Pacific Islands. I learned about Christ and his saving grace when I was just a young boy in my early teens because an elderly minister who had been a missionary in the South Pacific Islands, particularly the Solomon Islands, he came and taught me lessons from the Word of God. And as a result of that, my great desire was to become a missionary. I really wanted to be a missionary in the South Pacific Islands. And right from when I was 14 years of age, I determined that that's what I would be. Well, I finally graduated from Avondale College and I was expecting to get a call to go and serve somewhere. But after 12 months of working in the homeland, I got no call. And I was running short of money because I was not receiving any wages. I was just working as a volunteer, helping out. And uh, it was very difficult for me and my wife, and we had to get some money. And so I started on different jobs all over the place. Anything that I could do, I would take on and, and earn some money. But then I was working in the workshop of uh, Thies Brothers when they had just started out. And while I was working in their workshop, Les Thies, the boss, he came past the place where I was working and he said, Gordon, he said, would you be interested in going out and driving one of our tractors out in Western Queensland? He said, we're desperately in need of drivers out there. It's good pay, long hours, but good pay, but uh, if you like, you can go out there and do a few months of work out there for us. And I said, well, I'd be happy about that. And uh, he said, well, I'll fly you out. And they had a DC-3 and I was flown out to a place called Kalmaringa. Now, that's a big name, but it's out near Emerald. And the job was to plough 40,000 acres. It was for a British Food Corporation. And uh, there were four, four bulldozers and they had uh, machines for ploughing behind each one of them. There was a D8, a D7... Uh, sorry, a D7, a D6, and a, D, and a D8. And um, I had the D7 to uh, lead out with. And I was amazed at the amount of work we covered. But all the time while I was working out there, and it would be a 10-hour day shift for a week and then a 10-hour night shift for a week, and we'd work 24 hours a day. The, the men who would do the maintenance on the tractors would come in at... Five o'clock in the afternoon, work through till seven, and then the new team would come on at night time. And then they'd finish at uh, five o'clock in the morning, and then the grease monkeys, we used to call them, would come in and fuel up the, the bulldozers and do the greasing and maintenance on all the equipment. And the team would set out again at seven o'clock in the morning. It'd be long days and hard work, and it was dusty and dry and hot. And we lived in tents and you had to cook your own meals. Extremely difficult, and this is nothing like mission service, I thought. Oh, why, why have I got out here? Why am I here? Why doesn't the Lord uh, give me a call to the mission fields? That's what I've been longing for all, of the, all my life since I became a Christian. Well, I read something in the book of Isaiah which said, uh, I will go before thee and make the crooked place straight. Well, I thought that I was in a very crooked place out there. It was hard work. Sure, the money was good, but it was not what I wanted. I was wanting to serve the Lord as a missionary. But, you know, I think the Lord had something in mind. There were certain things that he needed to, to train me in, to correct me in, to uh, cut off any bad habits so that when I went out to the mission fields, I'd be able to serve him better. I didn't realize that at the time, and so I did a lot of complaining about the Lord not 
hearing my prayers. But I see now that the Lord was hearing my prayer all the time and he was helping me. And so finally, I got the call to the mission field. But uh, while I was in the mission field, I saw then that the Lord had a reason for me working out in the hard places like Western Queensland, driving bulldozers. And then the headquarters decided that it was necessary to establish a new headquarters in Honiara for what was to be called the Western Pacific Union Mission. Uh, We want you to find land and then we want you to go down and uh, establish the headquarters there. There's many buildings, there's housing going to put up, an office, a school. And I thought, where am I going to find land to cover, meet all this need? We need a big area. We need to be in the right place. So we made an earnest matter of prayer and we have a school down there that's sitting on a large area of land. It's called Betikama. And it's a big school, a boarding school. But I thought, well, we don't want to trespass and take up some of their room. There was a piece of land down near the main road, which was high up above flood level, which I thought, that would be good. I'll have a look at it. Well, we had to get our cane knives out and get in because the grass was about six foot high, big kunai grass, and we cut our way through it, and it was very hilly and very rough. And I thought, my, it's going to cost a lot of money just to get a bulldozer here to clear it and level it and put a road in and all that type of thing. But it was the only land that we could have, and we weren't, wouldn't have to pay any money for it because we already owned the land for the school. So I cleared it with the headquarters in Sydney, and they said, yes, go ahead and build it, and they provided some funds to build it. But how was I going to clear that land? Well, I went down again to have a look at it and find out how we could go about it. And while I'm travelling down in the plane, sitting next to me was a man who uh, I began conversation with him. And in a discussion, I said, what do you do for a living? Oh, he said, I have a big uh, equipment program for for clearing land and and um, putting in roads and all that type of thing up in New Guinea. But he said, I want to set up a new headquarters down in, in uh, the Solomon Islands. But he said, I'm looking for somewhere where I can leave the equipment for couple of three months and uh, have somebody to care for it until uh, I'm able to come down and do it, hand it myself. And I said, well, I can, uh, I can let you have some land down here to leave your equipment on. How much do you want for it, he said. I said, nothing. And he looked surprised. You mean to tell me I can leave my equipment on your land and tell you charge me nothing? I said, no. I said, you won't pay me anything. But I said, you'll let me use your D6. He said, what, you, a minister, going to use my D6? He said, how come? I said, well, I used to work for Thieves Brothers driving a D7. Oh, he said, well, that's different. He said, if you know how to drive a D7, you know how to drive a D6. So he made an agreement with us that we could use his uh, equipment, using his D6 with a bulldozer to uh, put the blade through the ground, put in roads, put in uh, house pads and do all that we needed to do. The only one thing we had to do was put the fuel in the in the bulldozer and maintain it. So I went down there, and my job was to drive that bulldozer. And here we had a beautiful machine to be able to push in roads, level it all out, put down the pads where the houses would go, put in a place where the school would be, there was to be a school there. And so the Lord had gone before me. And then I re- realized again, the Lord had gone before me, and he'd prepared the way. He had sent me way out the back of Queensland in order to learn how to handle equipment so that one day he could use me as a tool 
to be able to set up a new headquarters. And that beautiful headquarters in Honiara is a blessing to the church even to this day. So don't be afraid what the Lord asks you to do because he's got a plan for you and he'll let you do it. He'll bless you when you do. Sophie Lee here to read you another portion of the book, Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Papa held his little girl close. You won't have to give them up, Ellen. We'll take them with us, but we must move. You know what Mama and I do to earn money, don't you? Ellen nodded. She'd watched Mama and Papa making hats ever since she could remember. Well, Papa said, there aren't very many people living out here in the country, so we can't sell enough hats. We need to sell lots of hats to buy food for our family. How many people are in our family? Ellen thought a moment and then held up eight fingers with a satisfied grin. But Papa shook his head. There are eight children, but Mama and I are part of the family too. There are ten people in our family and it takes a lot of money to buy food and clothes for all ten of us. Besides, you children have to go to school. You and Elizabeth are six now, Ellen, so you'll be starting school this fall. Papa nodded as he thought out loud. We have to move to town where more people will buy hats, Ellen, so we have enough money to care for our large family. He slid her to her feet on the floor. Now go start packing your things. The thought of going to school filled Ellen with excitement. She'd been wanting to go to school for a long time. Her tears disappeared. Living in a town won't be so bad, she decided, since Papa promised we could bring our dogs and cows and horses and chickens. Ellen and Elizabeth liked their home in Portland. Every Sunday they went to the Methodist church. They loved their new Sunday school teacher who told them exciting stories about God rescuing his people. They heard how God rescued Daniel from the hungry lions and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego from the fiery furnace. The teacher even told them that God's son walked in the burning fire with the three friends. No one was burned. Ellen loved her wonderful God. More than anything else, Ellen wanted to be a faithful follower of God, just like Daniel and his friends. God had his eye on little Ellen. He had a big plan for her life. Chapter 2. Bossy Gets Stuck Every morning after breakfast, Papa called his family together and read from the Bible. Then they knelt down while he asked God to love and care for each of his eight children. One of Ellen's chores each morning was to lead Bossy, their cow, out of the barn and down the road to her pasture. Bossy stayed in the field all day. Trees shaded her from the hot sun and plenty of grass filled her tummy and a nearby stream gave her all the water she wanted. Each afternoon, Ellen walked back to find Bossy and bring her back to the barn. Ellen didn't mind because she loved Bossy like a pet and Bossy seemed to love Ellen too since Ellen treated Bossy so kindly. One afternoon, Ellen couldn't find Bossy. No matter where Ellen looked and how long she called, she didn't hear Bossy's low moo. Ellen looked behind the trees. She walked a long way looking everywhere for the cow. Could someone have taken her? Ellen wondered. She felt sad, but she didn't go home crying and asking someone to come help her. She just kept looking. After she'd looked a long time and felt almost too tired to take one more step, she thought she heard a faint sound. Moo! Ellen straightened her shoulders and turned her head and listened. 
She didn't hear it again, but slowly she began to run toward the spot from which the sound had come. When she reached the creek, down from where she'd been looking, she found Bossy. The cow stood at the edge of the water with her four feet stuck deep in the mud. Bossy's head hung down as if it were too heavy to lift. You must be hungry, Ellen talked kindly to the cow while she picked a handful of green grass growing beside the creek. She reached out as far as she could and let Bossy eat the grass from her hand. She picked another handful of grass, but this time on purpose. She held it too far away for her to reach it. Oh, how Bossy wanted that delicious grass. She stretched her neck to reach it and tried to lift one foot out of the mud. Quickly, Ellen grabbed one of the cow's horns with her free hand and shouted, Come on, Bossy, come on, you can make it. Bossy seemed to understand, and as Ellen pulled with all her strength, Bossy did her best too. One by one, those four feet came out of the deep mud. The thick mud gave a loud slurch as each foot came out. Thank you, God, Ellen shouted. Thank you for helping Bossy and for helping me too. Now that I know how to stay warm, I'm ready to head off on our adventure in the snow. I just can't wait. It's going to be so exciting. Are you sure, Ranger Dan, that we will really find some animals living in the snow? I can't believe that anything could live where it is just so cold. Oh, yes, Mrs. Tammy. We'll find some animals, all right. I like to call them the Frozen Chosen. The animals that God especially designed to live amongst the snow and the ice. Frozen chosen. I like that. Animals chosen to be frozen. Well, let's go then. Let's go meet the frozen chosen. We'll meet the frozen chosen animals on the ice. Oh yes, the frozen chosen amongst the snowy white. Find out why it's so God put animals in the snow And just why they were chosen To live amongst the frozen We'll meet the frozen chosen Animals on the ice So oh, yes, the frozen chosen Amongst the snowy white We'll find out why it's so God put animals in the snow And just why they were chosen To live amongst the frozen It's a fair way out to the Arctic from here, Mrs. Tammy, so we're going to head out and meet old mate Chopper. We'll have a great view of the snow from way up high, and it's the fastest way to get to where we want to be going. And Mrs. Tammy, I can land this baby almost anywhere. Oh, a helicopter ride! I've never been in a helicopter before! Climb aboard, Mrs. Tammy. Buckle yourself in there nice and tight. While I get old Chopper here ready to take off. There we go. All clicked in. This is so exciting, Ranger Dan. It sure is, Mrs. Tammy. Hold on tight. Here we go. Oh, wow. 
thing is starting to look so small. Forever up here, Mrs. Tammy. I like to think of it as if we sort of have a God's eye view. I like that, Ranger Dan. Now I can see how God is keeping an eye on everything, including us. Yes, Mrs. Tammy. It doesn't really matter where we go, because God is not only watching over us from way up in heaven, he's also by our side. Chopper, 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 way up in a helicopter. We can fly so, fly so high, and it doesn't really matter where we want to go, cause God is by our side. We can zoom to the left and zoom to the right, fly around in a circle on a helicopter flight, just as long as we get to where we want to go, and we're going to the snow. In a chopper, 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 chopper. Boys and girls, I'm Auntie Nat. I'm glad you have come back to read the Bible with me. Are you ready? Auntie Nat is reading out of the New King James Version. And today we're going to continue our story in Luke. And we are starting in chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favoured one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Now, boys and girls, at this time it was every girl's dream to be able to be the one to carry the Messiah. Every young girl who was in the lineage of David had always hoped in their heart that they may be the girl that God chooses. And for Mary, she was the one. So she was very blessed among women. Let's continue reading verse 29. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now, boys and girls, you can actually look up in your Bibles these prophecies that Auntie Nat's going to tell you that actually refer to the two verses that we've just read. For verse 31, you can look up Isaiah 7.14, and this prophesies that Jesus would be born of a virgin. And verse 32, if you look up the prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, this tells us that Jesus would be born of the line of David, meaning that his family went back to King David. We're going to continue reading 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. 
Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her, who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to the city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Now, boys and girls, by this time, Elizabeth was six months pregnant and Mary hadn't told anyone what had happened to her with the visit from the angel Gabriel. And Mary would have wanted to go visit Elizabeth just to feel reassured and comforted that what the experience that she went through was actually true. And I'm sure that this visit was just a really glad one. And we're going to read about it in verse 41. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfilment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Saviour, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and the exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Now Elizabeth full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbours and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. Now, boys and girls, at this time, it was very unusual to call a baby a different name from their father or their mother. It was always, always the names were handed down. So this was a very unusual request. Let's see what happens. So they made signs for his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marvelled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. 
So boys and girls, I would love it if you could take to your hearts these wonderful words that we've just read and invite Jesus into your heart, just like the people of Judea took all these things into their hearts. Thank you for reading with us today. Hello boys and girls, it's Dr. John again with another story by Eric B. Hare, the master storyteller, the missionary from Burma, almost 100 years ago. And this chapter is called On Door. Now don't you go near that old pagoda, those two pythons will get you. Pythons? Yes, don't you know that there are two big python snakes as big as houses guarding the treasure buried at the bottom of that pagoda? What treasure? What pagoda? What pythons? Oh, don't you believe me? Well, just sit down and I'll tell you all about it. We had just arrived in Kalmamang, beautiful Kalmamang, and we have traveled up the Solwyn River for about 100 miles. Now, boys and girls, that's about 160 kilometers from Molmeen and fascinated with the rich river scenery and beautiful jungle foliage. We were looking over the mission station. We had seen the dispensary or clinic the other small mat buildings and the bungalow or house which was being built and we were about to take a stroll around the ruins of an old pagoda that was on the north boundary of the property when an old lady gave us the above advice. We were interested in the old pagoda so sat down and listened intently to her story. Drawing close and holding up a quieting finger, she spoke in low tones just above a whisper. Years and years ago, before the white man came to Burma, this place was a big Shan village. Do you see the opposite bank? There was a big village there too, but it was a Taliang village. The two villages never agreed, but were always quarrelling and threatening to kill any who dared to cross the river. The Taliang village gloried in its 33 pagodas and whose whitewashed peaks crowned each rise of ground and gave the name of 33 pagodas to the village. The Shan village planted coconut trees whose tufty tops reached up to the sky waved in each breeze and gave their village the name of Cluster of Coconut Palms. In Burmese, it is called Ondor. Years passed, and still the villagers quarreled till one day an old man in Ondor said, Look, that village has 33 pagodas and we have none. Let us build a pagoda and it may be that the spirits will be so pleased that we shall have peace from our enemies and those that hate us. 
Well, this saying pleased them well, and before long they set to work. Some made bricks, some rolled big stones together, some got lime, some brought carts, and little by little their pagoda grew. Many hard days they spent in toil, but finally they were ready for the very top, the crown, with the bells and the glass and the iron to make it pretty. This, of course, would be a day of great rejoicing and must be accompanied with a great celebration. They must have the dancers, the players on musical instruments, and the singers. So they planned the day and made their preparations when, what do you think? The very night before the festival, there was a terrible storm. The winds blew, the rains came, the thunder roared, the lightning flashed. And in the morning, the top of the pagoda was found broken down. But they didn't give up. They postponed the day of celebration and set to work repairing the pagoda. Soon it was ready once more for the crown when what should happen? But another terrible storm which again broke down their pagoda. What is the matter? They asked each other. Surely the spirits are very angry with us. Oh, what should we do? And the more fearful rolled up their mats and tying the legs of their chickens and pigs together, slung them over their shoulders and fled for their lives. Then the village elders brought the priest and with great solemnity he cursed anyone who should try to dig up the treasure buried beneath the pagoda, saying, Let him perish in his work. And after that, the village rapidly went down and down until it was left desolate and empty. The rains came year by year. And by and by the jungle grew up, the creepers tangled and entwined themselves around the old pagoda and covered it all over, and you would hardly know that there had ever been a pagoda there. Then the British came to Burma, and the stories of their big guns and the capture of Mulmeen came up the river, and before long, the village of the 33 pagodas was also abandoned and left desolate and empty. Here the old lady paused for breath, drew a little closer, and continued her story more closely. Since the day the priest cursed the pagoda, no one has dared to go near it, though some, bolder than others, declared that while they had been hunting near there, they had seen two huge snakes guarding the treasure. Well, one day, along came a man through the jungle, and all of a sudden he came across the old pagoda. Hello, he said to himself, here's an old pagoda. I wonder if anyone has dug up the treasure yet. We told him it was cursed, but he only laughed and said he wasn't afraid of anything. He'd get the treasure. And away he went with a hoe and a crowbar and dug a hole right into the heart of the pagoda. But would you believe it? As he was working one day, some bricks fell on top of him and he was just able to crawl home to die. 
After this, the people hated even to talk about the pagoda. They made the road further off in the jungle and dared not go anywhere near it until at last another man said he was going to try to get the treasure. He had never seen the spirits or the snakes. He would get it. But he too, while working in his hole, was hit with some falling rocks and just crawled home in time to die. So now if you want to go and look at that pagoda, go. But mind you, no good can come to you. And the old lady rolled up a new wad of betel nut. Boys and girls, betel nut is horrible red staining nuts that they chew in Burma. She put it into her mouth and watched to see what effect her story would have on us. But we were not afraid of spirits or curses. So assuring the dear old lady that the spirits would not hurt us, we walked around to the pagoda. Sure enough, it was in ruins. A tree was growing out of the top of it, and there was a big hole dug into the bottom of it. We stood there and wondered if God had sent the storm to stop the progress of the building. Perhaps God had chosen to establish his name in Ondor, and we prayed, O oh God, help us so to live that thy name may be glorified above the superstition of these poor people. Sometime after this, we dug a well to ensure a good supply of clean water, while the river was muddy after the rainy season. After digging 38 feet, we came to beautiful, clear water, and we were so happy about it. But that same afternoon, Peter came running to me with a startling question, Stara, what'll we do? The well is caving in, the earth is so soft that unless we brick it up, our well will be spoiled. Well, I said, We'll send someone down to Mulmin to bring back some bricks, but that will take ten days, Thara, and by that time our well will be ruined. Well, I said, where can we get any bricks nearby? I don't know, said Peter. I don't know where there are any bricks around here. Oh, unless, Thara, say, what about the old pagoda? And I said, yes, what about the old pagoda? So we got the boys and our hose and some sacks and we went up to the old pagoda and hunted through those ruins. We saw no snakes, we felt no curse, but we found treasure, 5,000 good whole bricks. We put them into the sacks, slung the sacks over our backs and carried them down to the well and lined our well with them. It seems, said Peter, that the Lord had those bricks made especially for us. Yes, I answered, and long before either you or I was born. Special thanks go to Pacific Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read on air a selection from Jungle Stories, written by Eric B. Hare, and Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. 
Also, thanks goes to Stanborough Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read a selection of stories from the set of books called Uncle Arthur's Best Bedtime Stories. And thanks to Remnant Publications for permission to read the Remnant Young Scholar Study Bible on air. We would also like to thank Daniel and Tammy Cinzio for allowing us to play their CD Frozen Chosen on air. For any other information about the Children's Story Hour, you can contact us at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. Careful little eyes, what you see. For the Father's up above, and He's looking down in love. Oh, be careful little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful little ears, what you hear. For the Father's up above. And he's looking down with love Oh, be careful, little ears What you hear Oh, be careful, little tongue What you say Oh, be careful, little tongue What you say For the Father's up above And he's looking down with love Oh, be careful, little tongue What you say Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. For the Father's up above, and He's looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little hands.
careful little feet where you go. Oh, be careful little feet where you go. For the Father's up above and He's looking down with love. Oh, be careful little feet where you go. Gavin Chitalia and the children sang Oh Be Careful, and before that, Auntie Cecily sang Trust and Obey. Well, boys and girls, we have come to the end of another Children's Story Hour. We thank you for joining us, and we hope that you have enjoyed the program. On behalf of Auntie Sue, I would like to say goodbye, God bless you, and we'll see you again next week for another episode of the Children's Story Hour. <laughs> 